Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Pablo Selnick, who is director of the Johns Hopkins Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and physiatrist-in-chief at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Selnick, thank you for being here today. Absolutely. Dr. Selnick is director of the Johns Hopkins Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation and physiatrist-in-chief at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He also is a professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation, neurology, and neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. A native of Argentina, his medical degree is from the University of Buenos Aires School of Medicine. He completed his residency training in neurology in Argentina and a fellowship in neurological rehabilitation at the University of Maryland. He also earned two research fellowships at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Selnick has received numerous prestigious awards, including the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, the highest honor bestowed by the U.S. government on outstanding scientists and engineers beginning their independent careers. So for the benefit of our listening audience, Dr. Selnick, roughly how many individuals experience a stroke in the United States annually, and what percentage of those are able to return home following treatment? Stroke is a very common disease, unfortunately. Approximately, there are 795,000 Americans per year experience a stroke, and these are rates reported by the American Heart Association back in 2015, but those numbers remain pretty steady. This means that there is approximately one stroke every 40 seconds in the U.S., and we know that stroke, uh, because of this significant incidence, is one of the leading causes of severe disability. Currently, there are like uh, more than 3 million people who have had strokes that are alive. And one-third, or more than one-third of these 3 million people experience permanent severe disabilities. Following a stroke, what are the most common kinds of impairments that patients will suffer? Sure. So... Very frequently, uh, and, and the impairment will, will depend on the location of the stroke, but frequently uh, patients experience deficits in the motor domain, and this is just to uh, move or, uh, or perform motor activities, some actions and so on. So people experience weakness, uh, typically uh, it's expressed by in one side of the body that can affect the leg, the arm, the face. Sometimes it's the, the three parts evenly, or sometimes it's more pronounced in one of the parts versus the other. So weakness and deficits of movements and be able to control, so to perform accurate movements is one of the most common problems. But like I said earlier, if people if the stroke occurs in other parts of the brain, you can experience other deficits. Uh, for instance, 
language problems are very common. Uh, language goes both both parts. One is the ability to understand when somebody speaks to the person or the ability to express yourself. So some people have uh, language that are so severe that they do not understand and they cannot say anything. There are some people who have problems understanding, but they're able to say words, but they make no sense because they are not able to uh, comprehend what's going on in the conversation. And then there are some people who actually have very good comprehension, but they're not able to express themselves. There are also motoric problems on the speech. So to talk, you need to activate your muscles and so on. So people can have uh, reduced coordination of the muscles of the phonation and and speech. So uh, people can have difficulty expressing, although they're able to talk and understand, and they have difficulty making the sounds of of the speech. Other common problems are visual problems. So people can experience something what we call visual field cuts. This means that one part of the vision uh, is is gone. Some people, for instance, experience deficits in one side of the visual space or one, one quarter of the visual space. And sometimes folks are completely aware of that, and sometimes people are completely unaware of that. There are other strokes in other parts of the brain that affect this issue of awareness. So they cannot move the left side of the body, for instance, and then they cannot even pay attention to this side of the body. So if you ask the person, do you have any problems, they may even deny that they have a problem because they are not paying attention to it. They, they, they just, it's not there. And that's something that we call, in the severe cases, we call that neglect. But there are different levels of severity for that type of syndrome. There are other problems that are frequent is swallowing difficulties. So you can have abnormalities to, to swallow and difficulties with processing. Typically, liquids is the most common problem. Solids are maybe a little bit easier to manage. Other problems that can also occur are in the space of sensation. Uh, people can decrease the feelings that they have in one part of the body. And this is very important because you need sensation to be able to execute the motor tasks. You need to feel what you're doing. Or when you interact with the world, for instance, if you need to pick up a pot from the from the stove, uh, you want to make sure that, that it's not super hot, that you're not going to burn your skin. So if you have sensation decrease uh, abnormalities, there is risk of injuring yourself. There are other common problems is balance difficulties when it affects this, uh, the back of the head and so on. So people have difficulties walking and they may have frequent falls. And this is the typical pattern that that you may see in somebody walking the street who have had a stroke, that they walk with difficulty moving one side of the body with short steps on one side. A lot of times they use a cane. A lot of times you see that the arm is flexed on the elbow and turned inside the hand. So those are very frequent problems. There are other problems that people are not so aware of, for instance, affecting cognition. So it can affect some uh, memory problems or concentration. It can actually, uh, people can experience difficulty with uh, what we call executive functioning, like reasoning and switching between different attentional tasks and so on. And these cognitive problems are not unusual, but sometimes they go, uh, they are not discovered right away because the deficits in the motor domain are so important that people are not paying attention to some of the cognitive abilities. And you do not know that you have a deficit in the cognitive ability until you are exposed and challenged. So if you are like sitting in a, in a hospital bed, and you're not maybe reading a book or working or paying attention to things that are much more demanding than a casual conversation. But when you are released from the hospital and then you need to 
go back to work or to study or engage in much more uh, cognitive demanding activities, then people can experience or notice that they have deficits in that in that domain. And also uh, another aspect is mood disorder. So it's not unusual that people with stroke experience uh, depression. And you can experience depression because of two different reasons. One is because you just went through a major trauma in your life. I mean, having a stroke is a very traumatic event that really disrupts people's life and family dynamics and so on. So that can just by itself, uh, some folks can cause depression. But also, if the lesion is uh, of the stroke affects particular areas of the brain, like in the frontal areas, it can cause by itself depression. So mood disorders are also present after a stroke. So basically, what happens is that the brain does everything that we do in life. Everything that we are is the brain. So depending on where the lesion is located or which part of the brain is affected, the person may experience abnormalities or deficits in that domain. So the list is, can continue, but those are the most frequent problems that folks can experience. Well, thank you for providing such a comprehensive array of impairments. Are there any factors such as the age of a person that can affect both the degree and the speed of recovery following a stroke? Yeah, this is a, a very uh, interesting question about the issues of recovery because recovery is carried on by the ability of the rest of the brain to reorganize and deal with the problem. And that will depend a little bit on which part of the brain has been affected and uh, the ability of the rest of the brain to reorganize. And the question of aging is very important. There is a general conception that younger people have a, a more plastic brain, the brain that has a, a higher ability to adapt to different situations, whereas an older brain maybe is less plastic. This is not perhaps 100% true. What happens is that with aging, there are changes in the brain that is an overall perhaps reduction of function and, uh, and a reduction of uh, brain capacity, which means that the ability to deal with the problem then is reduced because you have less brain reserve. So that can be that reduction of brain reserve because of aging processes can affect how much somebody will recover. So it is true that we can see that older folks, uh, very older folks, perhaps recovered a little bit less than younger folks. But this is not a one-to-one thing. So sometimes we are surprised by older folks having very nice recoveries and very young folks having very poor recovery. So that's because, again, it's about brain capacity or brain reserve, the ability of the rest of the brain to reorganize, but also what uh, the stroke, what part of the brain the stroke has affected. Once a patient begins treatment, what kinds of measures are there to determine neurological recovery, and at what stages are these measures applied most effectively? So understanding the process of brain recovery from the research side is very, very important because if we understand what is the normal progression of the disease, then we can then deploy interventions to try to change the normal progression of the disease to improve recovery or, or help patients get better. So we we have different type of measures depending on the, the, the area of impairment. As you may imagine, you, I mentioned things in the motor domain, like strength and the ability to control movements or balance. Things in the sensory domain, perception domain, like I talk about the vision or sensory perception. We have uh, impairments in the cognitive domain, like I talked before, attention, memory, and mood disorders type of thing. So 
these are the kind of four major areas that we can bucket all the deficits that I mentioned earlier. And depending on the impairment, the measure that we use. But for the most part, the idea is to be able to assess the patients early on with some of these fine sensitive metrics so we can quantify how people recover. That's what we do in the research domain when we when we work with stroke patients. In the clinical domain, there are overall measures that we use typically when you know, a physician meets with a patient and, and we quantify the, the deficit. Those measures perhaps are a little bit more crude than the research fine-grained metrics, but they're able also to allow us to, to understand the severity of the disease and the likelihood of, of recovery of some, to some degree, how much a person will, will improve. So going back, the idea again is to measure these things very early on. And then hopefully there is follow-up with the patient so we can also continue those measurements as the patient progresses and recovers. During what periods of time, such as weeks or months, for example, do most rehab interventions take place? And are there plateaus where further treatment would not be associated with any additional improvements? Yeah, this is a very important question. So we try to deploy rehabilitation interventions earlier after the stroke. We know from animal research and from human research that high-intensity earlier rehabilitation interventions are the best, are the ones that are going to allow the patient to recover the most. So in an ideal world, we want to do a lot of rehabilitations very early on, high-intensity. We know that that's the best moment to treat. The reality is that people have lives and there are payers or health insurance and so on that dictates a little bit when somebody is able or not to come to rehabilitation. So not every patient is allowed or can come to rehabilitation early on, and sometimes we need to work with the patient later on. But I just expressed before what the ideal scenario is. It's very early and high intensity. Now, having said that, the process of recovery is dynamic. There are different elements in the recovery process. Well, we can define recovery at different levels. One is the recovery as the restoration of neurological function. So the, the ability, if you are weak, can you regain your strength? If you cannot uh, control your movements because in coordination of the, of the muscles, can you regain the coordination? So that's one level of recovery, restoration of neurological function. Another level of recovery is improvement on what we call activity or function. So, for instance, despite the fact that I'm weak, I can still teach you how to grab a glass and, and then have a glass of water and drink. Or despite the fact that you are weak in the arm or in the leg, I can still teach the patient how to get dressed and put the shoes and socks and you know, be able to get dressed and so on. Even though there is no recovery in the neurological function, we still can have recovery in the, in the functional domain, on the activity domain. So... That, that is a very important distinction to, to understand how the different interventions will affect uh, these different domains. Early on, we work very hard to return neurological function, and that would be the ideal moment to do that, but because we know that the brain perhaps is more plastic uh, earlier on. The reality is that the patients are in the hospital and they need to go home, they need to resume their lives and so on, so we don't have a lot of time with a patient to work on 
the restoration of neurological function. So very rapidly, we are also teaching the patient how to deal with the problem, how to improve the activities and the, their function. And we do that to facilitate a rapid return to home and, and try to normalize a bit their life. But the science is not there yet to determine whether doing that is detrimental to the restoration of neurological function versus not. But that's basically what, how rehab is at least planned. One part is exercises to return neurological function, and the other part is exercises or training to reduce the deficit and the level of activity and, and function. As described in the January 2018 issue of the journal Brain, you were involved in a study to determine whether post-stroke mirror movements in the non-paretic hand are generated cortically or subcortically. Please describe this investigation and its implications for hand recovery after a stroke. And for the benefit of our listeners, the term paretic refers to a form of paralysis, correct? Correct. Yeah, so this is... uh... I think a very interesting line of work. If you like, I'm going to call it a little bit geeky research about the brain and brain recovery. So uh, something that everybody experiences is something what we call mirror movements. And you see this in babies. When they move one hand, they also the other hand moves. They move an arm, the other arm moves. So there is uh, these motions that are in both upper extremities, for instance. And this is what we call mirror movements. So you're trying to move one hand and then the other one goes along. And this is how the brain is wired. Now with maturity, the brain develops new pathways that control the mirroring because as you may imagine, it's not very helpful to have uh, both hands doing the same thing all the time. We, we are very proficient and skillful at moving one arm and, and doing something else with the other hand. So to be able to do that, you need to decouple the two arms. So the idea is that in that investigation, look at the development or the return of these mirroring movements because it can tell us something about how the brain is trying to recover and what kind of changes occur in the brain after somebody has a stroke. It's not unusual that after somebody has a stroke and they have paresis or, like you said, a weakness of the arm or paralysis of the arm, this mirror movements return. So the person is trying to move the weak hand. They are able to move a little bit, but then you can also see a spreading of that commands, motor commands or orders to the other hand, to the healthy hand. So that's basically a mirror movement. And that tells us a little bit about what kind of brain areas are being engaged to try to recover the hand that is weak. So in that study, we look at how the pattern of the mirror movements occur very early after the stroke and how those patterns change over the year following a stroke. And basically, what the study told us is that a significant component of this return of activation or return of function is given by subcortical areas in the brain. Subcortical meaning not the the traditional gray matter, the cortex, the more outer layer of the brain, but rather deep areas of the brain. In other words, maybe the brain is trying to, the cortex is trying to use as much as possible commands to try to activate the paretic hand, but because we are using uh, pathways that connect to both hands, we are engaging those pathways again, and then you, the person experience mirroring or mirror movements. So that's what that work was about. 
Dr. Selnick, I'll conclude part one of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about several important topics pertaining to injury resulting from a stroke. A second part of this interview will be made available on a separate occasion, and our listeners are invited to access it also. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.